0: All right, guys, well, we're coming to an end pretty close with this Assurance of Salvation Bible study series. Next week will probably be the final lesson. We're tying everything together, painting the holistic picture of Assurance of Salvation, and covering some practical application by way of case studies. So you'll want to stick around for that. That'll be next week. I think once we've covered all of our bases, it'll just benefit you to now. Kind of put it all together in in one message and see that the big picture understanding of assurance. I think that'll be helpful. Wrap it all up next week, I think. So that's the plan. But for now, we still have a little ground to cover. We're continuing to study the basis of our assurance, the practical basis of our assurance. What's assurance of salvation based on? Well, fundamentally it's based on our our faith and our trust in God and his promises to save. Salvation is not based on our performance It's based on Christ's performance and our just trust in him. We just receive salvation as a gift by faith. How do we know we've received that gift? Well, in a sense, it just comes down to believing God's promises and taking him at his word to save forever those who believe in his son. Assurance is largely by faith. But we've been exploring for about three weeks now. There's a little complication in that namely that the Bible says that there's such a thing as false faith. Bible talks about people, even many people who they say they believe in Jesus. They claim to be Christians. They, They sure believe that when they die, they're going to heaven. They say they have faith, but in the end they're kept out of the kingdom of heaven. That's very troubling and concerning. These people totally believe they were saved, but it's revealed that they were deceived and, false believers. We've studied verses like that 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 show that very fact. This means their assurance of salvation was false and, well, their very faith was false. That's troubling, like I said. It makes us wonder, like, well, okay, how do I know I'm not deceived? How do I know what I think is saving faith is not something else? Those people somehow got it wrong. Well, as we've been finding, thankfully, the Bible has something to say about that. Scripture does not merely reveal the existence of true and false faith, which it does, but it also goes into great detail about some of the defining characteristics of true and false faith. In other words, we're given quite the depiction of what saving faith looks like. Here's what genuine saving faith looks like. We're also given the depiction of where, here's where, what a phony faith looks like, a, a false profession or confession of faith. Looks like, And so our objective is just to study the Bible and see what the Bible says about true and false faith and then examine ourselves in light of that. And practically speaking, then, this is like the basis of our assurance. As we see these marks of true, genuine faith in our lives, Lord willing, we can be assured that, okay, well, our faith in Christ is genuine. It is what scripture says is saving faith. And therefore, our salvation in Him is secure. We can just rest in His promises to save us. And so, getting more specific, over the past several weeks, we've been diving into 12 distinguishing marks of true faith from Scripture. 12 distinguishing marks of true faith from Scripture. And these form really, you might say, the practical basis of our assurance. These enable us to evaluate our faith and see if it measures up to, like, the biblical definition and depiction of true faith. And so far we've covered the first five and these would be obedience, repentance, love for God, love for others, and a loss of love for the world. Now of any time for recap, so just go online and listen to the past couple messages to learn more about how scripture indicates those are essential marks and really outcomes of true faith. Now we're going to carry on and almost finish going through the next four of these distinguishing marks. And just real quick, in my further study, I decided to consolidate the list a little bit. So we're actually down to 10, 10 distinguishing marks. I've combined a few together just for the sake of time, but kind of wrapping things up. But today we'll cover is, uh, marks 6 through 9. We'll save number 10 for next week. It's kind of like the finishing touches to wrap everything together. You'll see how that Fits, But now we're going to cover the next four. We're just carrying on in this study now of what are the defining marks, the distinguishing marks of a faith that's real, faith that saves, according to Scripture. Again, that we might examine ourselves. So we've covered obedience, repentance, love for God, love for others, a loss of love for the world. Now we're on number six. So let's just carry on. Number six, doctrinal orthodoxy. Doctrinal Orthodoxy, And I'll obviously explain. But in Galatians chapter 1, Paul makes a very strong point. It should be obvious, but he basically says, like, if you believe in a different Jesus or a different gospel, you can't be saved. How are we saved? We're saved by faith alone. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. We're trusting in his person and his work to save us. But if you get the person of Jesus wrong, if you get the work of Jesus wrong, you have another gospel. And, well, Paul makes clear, you can't be saved by another gospel. You can't be saved by believing a false gospel. Paul says such one is accursed, meaning damned. You're still cut off from God if you're believing a false gospel. There are many people who think they're Christians and they think they're going to heaven. But they've subscribed to serious heresies and falsehoods about the gospel. And they're deceived and at least according to scripture, well, they shouldn't have assurance of salvation. They fail what you might call the test of truth or the test of doctrinal orthodoxy. And scripture constantly warns against false teachers who will do just that. They will lead people astray by preaching a different gospel. And so when it comes to our assurance then, As we ask whether our faith is real or saving, part of that is examining the object of our faith. Now, are we believing in the right Jesus? Are we trusting in the right gospel? Because there's false gospels out there. Now, keep in mind, we are not talking about secondary issues here, like, your view of church government or end times. We're not talking about that. We're talking about gospel matters. We're dealing with the person and the work of Christ. Some of the essential truths of the faith. You get those wrong. Scripture, that's the circle. That, that's in or out. And uh, we need to make sure you're not getting those wrong. The good news is it's not hard to tell. You just examine your beliefs and compare them to scripture. And do you have faith in the Jesus of scripture? Now, John and 1 John helps us with this. In addition to his tests of obedience and his test of love, he gives us a test of truth as a major mark of genuine faith. So let's look at this. 1 John 4, you can turn there. See a couple of passages in 1 uh, John here. 1 John 4. That's where we'll begin. At the end of chapter 3, he says, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Talking about the Holy Spirit. You know, there's other spirits. Apart from the Holy Spirit, there are demonic spirits. Which promote false doctrine. And so, in the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us to do something about these spirits. Verse 1, 1 John 4. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You notice in verse 1, he uses these spirits in parallel with false prophets. The connection is obvious. Those who are teaching false doctrine, at times, there's a demonic origin. You need to test what they're saying. 1 Timothy 4, one says, The Holy Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It's explicit there. That's what we're talking about here. There's false teaching out there, and it has even a demonic origin. We're called to test the spirits. That's our recourse, therefore. What do we do about this? Well, test the spirits. What does that mean? it just means you're comparing what they're saying, these prophets to scripture. And he gives an example of one test, verse two. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God. So here's one way to tell if, if it's if it's coming from the Holy Spirit or not. He says, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is, is from God. You know, does the teacher acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh, his true and full humanity? We're talking, you know, real humanity, a real human body. And those who don't, well, it's not from the Holy Spirit. That teacher is not of God. If they're denying the full humanity of Jesus, you're out. It's not, you know, orthodoxy, as John would say. Verse 3, he says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. Now, any false teaching that denies Christ, and here specifically denies his humanity, well, it's not from God, it's not from the Holy Spirit. So, this is a simple example, but just believing in the full humanity of Jesus is essential to salvation. Same goes for the full deity of Jesus. He says that down in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And for John, son of God is is a title of deity. The same goes for Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. That's in chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So John puts together a a little string of some doctrinal tests. These are essential truths. Dealing with the person of Christ. You you can't get that wrong. Now, verses 4 through 6, still in in chapter 4, he gives another test. It's kind of a big overall test. Look at verse 4. It says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And look, he says, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What's he saying here? He's essentially establishing like the ultimate test of truth, which is, you might just say, adherence to apostolic teaching. It's adherence to apostolic teaching. But keep in mind, like, what is that? Jesus never wrote anything down. As far as we know, like no part of the New Testament did he write. All the New Testament came from his apostles, his delegates, his representatives. He commissioned them to represent him, to tell his gospel, and inspired them to write letters, to tell more. And so he used these men, these apostles, to pass down orally and then in written form his word. And so what John is saying as one of his chief apostles The one who does not listen to the the written word of his representatives, the apostles, a.k.a. Scripture, doesn't know God. And John presents this as, this is how you tell. Spirit of truth versus a spirit of error. How do you know whether a teacher is of the Lord or not? Well, do do they accord with Scripture? Do they adhere with Scripture? Satan has been distorting God's word from the beginning. That's like the M-O. Of Satan and evil spirits and false teachers. And so like it's a simple test, it's like, well, compare it to the Bible. Are they distorting and getting wrong the word? It's like the test of truth. He goes into this also back in chapter two. Let's let's go back there to first John two twenty one. First John two twenty one, he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lies of the truth who is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And look at verse 24. He says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. John, abide. This is relational terms. This is assurance terms. How do you know you're going to abide in, or you abide in Christ and in the Father? Well, you, you abide in the word you've heard from the beginning. And for John, back in chapter 1, it's clear. He's talking about the word of Christ, the gospel, orthodoxy, what just everything he passed on to them in the church about Jesus that if that abides in you, if you retain the standard of sound words, the standard of sound doctrine, you can gain assurance. You're, you're real. First Timothy 6, 3-4 through four, paints the other picture. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. And so it's, it's, it's actually a simple test. Like, do you accept Jesus Christ as fully presented in the scriptures? You may take this for granted, but that's, that's a real test of faith, a test of assurance. Your belief in the apostolic testimony of Jesus is presented as one way you can distinguish it. A spirit of truth versus a spirit of error. And so if you, if you examine yourself and you're teaching compared to scripture and you find you've subscribed to a spirit of error, well, can you have assurance that that faith is real and genuine? You, you've missed the object of faith. Uh, you should be very concerned. And of course, if you want assurance of salvation, well, make sure you are believing the truth. It's not something we might think of often as a way, uh, a means of assurance, but John, several places makes clear that, you know, a test of truth, a test of what you believe, these gospel matters, well, they better be a part of your faith. Otherwise, you may have subscribed to a spirit of error, and you should not have assurance. So, number six, doctrinal orthodoxy matters. Number seven, a seventh distinguishing mark of true faith. We'll call it just true humility. True humility. Humility is both a a prerequisite and a lasting mark of real faith. It's a big deal. First, humility is a prerequisite of true faith. God's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The the humble are the ones who receive his grace, his transforming grace and gift of salvation. For only the humble come to the end of themselves and their self-righteousness and their self-effort and put all of their hope in Jesus Saving faith will never emerge apart from this humility. And thereafter, humility comes to mark the true believer. It becomes a lasting mark of the true believer. As true believers recognize they've been saved by grace, just by God's free gift of righteousness. And so they they don't boast in self at all. They, they, They boast in Christ. Their faith makes much of Christ, not self. And to the contrary, those with false faith, they're still marked by pride. They boast in self. They parade their accomplishments. They tout their own spirituality. They're like the Pharisees. They're still, they reveal their, they're basically still, you know, trusting in themselves for their salvation. And They're deceived. Their lack of humility should diminish their assurance. Now it doesn't, that that's part of their pride, but it should. That, that level of spiritual pride should diminish your assurance. That is not a mark of genuine faith. The opposite is a real deep humility and just recognition of God's grace. Where's boasting there? Where's room for boasting? All I have is Christ. That should emerge from true faith. Let me show you this in Philippians 3. So I want you to turn over there, Philippians 3, 2-9. An important passage on this issue. Philippians 3, Two through nine. In the context here, Paul is talking about a contrast between true and false believers. He says in verse two, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory In Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's making a contrast here. He's talking about Jewish Christians and there were false Jews. You know, these are Jews who had confessed Jesus as the Messiah, but some of them had believed in a different gospel and a different Jesus. They were Jewish Christians and they weren't truly saved though. And they're the false circumcision. What's the difference? What showcases the difference between these true believers and these false believers. Well, true believers, he says, worship in the spirit of God. They glory, not in themselves, but in Christ Jesus. They put no confidence in the flesh. Their boast is in Jesus, not self, not accomplishment, not their deeds. They recognize they've been saved by grace alone. And so there's just no room for boasting there. That's how you, you see someone who's of the true circumcision, someone who's saved. But those who put confidence in the flesh, well, they're showing they've not recognized the gospel of grace, the only gospel. They've not believed in Christ per the true gospel. There's a problem here. Look at verses four through six. He goes on to say, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day, Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So, what he's saying is if anyone had reason to boast in the flesh, and that's just talking about your accomplishments, it was Paul. I mean, look at all of his badges of honor. When it comes to self righteousness, He had reason to boast, but verse seven, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You know, our own deeds and works and self-righteousness count for nothing before God when it comes to our salvation. They, they really keep us from God. And when Paul realized this, he cast down all the works of the flesh he was holding on to, to justify him. And he, he, he got rid of everything. I'm, no, I can't, I'm not trusting in my lineage, my birthright, my deeds, my righteousness. Drop it all. And he picked up, just Christ alone. Christ alone is the only thing that can justify me or, or save me. But that requires this humble admission that there's nothing you can do on your own. There's nothing you can bring to earn your favor before God. You've got to come you know, naked and empty, holding on to nothing else. And so he says in verse 9, that he may be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through Faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And saving righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. These Judaizers, these Jewish Christians, they would have said they had faith in Jesus. They believed in God, of course. But Paul argues their faith claims were proven false by their pride, by their self righteousness, by the fact that they're trusting in themselves. They're betraying the gospel with their boasting and their, with their pride. And Paul himself makes this issue, humility versus pride, a distinguishing mark between those of the true circumcision, those of the false. Do you see that? And and so it goes. So it still goes that the true believer with true faith will be marked by just a, a deep-seated, not perfect, but a deep-seated humility, a recognition what do I have to bring? Nothing. You just cling to Christ and his cross. You see the same contrast developed by the Lord himself in Luke 18. I think this will help. So just turn, keep turning back now to Luke 18. You will recognize this right away. This little parable. Where Christ himself. Gives the same contrast between the true believer and the false believer. The true disciple versus the false disciple. And he starts off with the picture of the false believer. Person who thinks they're in the people of God, but is not. Verse 9, Luke 18. It says, And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And clearly the, the Pharisee was trusting in himself. He was righteous and therefore viewed others with contempt. They they didn't measure up. He boasted in his accomplishments. He was relying on his self-righteousness for his standing before the Lord. This is just rank pride. By contrast, though, verse 12 or 13, it says, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The tax collector was not righteous. He was a great sinner. But you know what? So was the Pharisee. He's a sinner too. The difference is that in humility and brokenness, the tax collector realized it. He stopped pretending. He stopped putting on a show for others. He was naked and bare before God. But he knew and recognized he was guilty. He he was deserving of a just judgment. God would be just to judge him. He knew he was unworthy to approach. So he, he didn't. But still though, by faith, he did come before God in prayer and just pleading for mercy. That is true humility. And that marks true faith. As Christ himself evaluates in verse 14, he says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus affirms the tax collector, the humble sinner is one who is justified. Only the humble are exalted by God's grace and salvation, but the proud will be cast down. And this contrast is consistently portrayed throughout all scripture in fact, the next passage just adds to it. These, these passages go together. Luke put them together for a reason. Look at verse 15, the next verse. It says, and they were, right after this, it says, and they were bringing even their babies to him that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. It's not saying you have to be a child to enter the kingdom. You've got to be like a child. You've got to receive the kingdom like a child. Have faith like a child. What does that mean? Well, the parallel in Matthew helps a little bit. I'll just read Matthew eighteen three through four. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's clearly talking about humility. A true faith is defined by just a simple, helpless trust and dependence on God. Like a child, the believer has nothing to offer God. No, no accomplishments to rely on. Child hasn't done anything. Just just needs everything. Can't, can't give anything. Just needs everything. No resources, no accomplishments. Just comes 100% needy, asking for help. But this is the type of humility that finds favor with God. It's part of the very definition of a type of faith that saves. Like I said, it's both a prerequisite of saving faith and a dis- defining mark. Of saving faith. So anyway, when it comes to just your own salvation and your own faith, you look at this contrast in scripture. Well, which resonates with you? Are you the Pharisee? Do you rely on yourself and your accomplishments before God for your standing with God? Do you believe that, you know, because you go to church, you read your Bible, you're you're a good Christian. You think that means God will accept you. Are you just boasting in self and just counting on, you know, all the things you do for your salvation? Or do you recognize that there's nothing you could ever do to earn his favor? You are justly cut off as a wicked sinner, but but have you appealed to God just crying out for his mercy, trusting Christ alone to save you? And now, is your boast just, well, Christ, his work on the cross, his righteousness, his uh, gift to you. if you in true humility, recognize and boast in god 's saving grace and not self, well you can grow in the assurance that your faith is is real and genuine that 's a distinguishing mark of true faith. If you have that mark, well be encouraged. That is a good sign that 's a sure sign of of a faith that is real, that is saving that 's clinging to Christ. And I pray you are marked by this true, deep humility. And I boast in Christ alone. Well, Let's try and get through a couple more here. See if we can do it. Number eight is private prayer. Private prayer. Just think on this a little bit. Prayer is very important in the life of a Christian. It's our lifeline to God. And can you even have salvation without prayer? I mean, what is a saving confession in Jesus other than it's a prayer to God for mercy? Like the tax collector. The prayer of faith, that's the means by which we receive forgiveness and new life. But thereafter, a life of prayer will mark the true believer and it will accompany new birth. Remember earlier, we noted how a love for God, a love for others, obedience to God's will. Those are the outcomes of saving faith, right? And also marks of assurance. Well, you know one big way those are expressed is through prayer. Prayer is how you obey God. Prayer is one way you obey God. It is a command after all. Frequently, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. 1 Timothy 2.1, pray on behalf of all men. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. I mean, there's a long list of commands to pray. It's pretty simple. But of course, for the believer, you know, prayer is not just a duty or obligation It should come naturally out of our new relationship with God in love. It's an expression of our love for God. So says a child loves to talk to his or her parent. We now naturally should love to just talk to God. And one real way we express our love for him is is through prayer. In prayer, we we thank God, we praise him, we magnify him, we we meditate on, on his attributes, his goodness, In prayer, we commune with God. We exalt him for who he is and what he's done. It's a chief expression of our worship, as we learned this morning. Prayer also gives expression to the humble, childlike dependence on God. When we bring our needs to him and our requests to him in faith, we're confessing, you know, I don't have all the answers on my own. I don't have enough power on my own. We need God. Only he can deliver us. And we believe that. God is pleased when his people come to him in just a humble, childlike dependence. Not that you just pray only as if God's your magic genie, but the other side, though, like you are humbly coming before your Abba Father with your request because you need him to deliver. And God is pleased when we have that type of faith. That's an expression of faith. And prayer, in fact, is the primary expression of faith and trust in God. Like we saw this morning, you know, by prayer, we're declaring the fact inherently that we, we really believe. God is real. I'm not just talking to myself here. He's there. He can hear me. He can answer me. He has the power. He's good. But I, I submit to his will. I'm just going to let my request be made known in faith, just asking and trusting his will. But, you know, that just dependence pleases God and honors his name. And all in all, if our faith in Christ is real and we are truly adopted into God's family, you know, prayer just should naturally result. And communication is essential to any relationship, if it's a real relationship. I don't know, maybe you've got a friend who who claims, you know, maybe she says she's best friends with the celebrity. But in reality, like they never ever talk. And so you would rightly question like the nature of that friendship. Are you really best friends? Do you even know the person? Like do you even have a real relationship with this celebrity? Doesn't sound like much of a real relationship if they never talk. And so likewise, the Christian who never talks to God in prayer at all has reason to question whether or not he or she is in a real relationship with God. The Lord Jesus himself, both in teaching and and in just his own example, makes crystal clear how prayer is part of the essence of a true disciple. If you're going to be his disciple, you're going to be like him, follow him, like prayer is of the essence. That's why we can say it's a defining mark. It's an essential mark. It should emerge from faith. And maybe well, you can read it on your own, but Matthew 6, you know the Lord's Prayer, he taught them how to pray. He, ex- he just He expected them to pray. That was not an issue. It's not like this was new for them. He just, from the beginning, he expected them to be praying. But he challenged how they prayed. He wanted them to pray in private. Not just in public like the Pharisees, so people can see you, but in private. You're communing with God. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer of faith and trust and dependence on God. It exalts God and depends on him for daily bread, for forgiveness, for deliverance from evil. And clearly, Jesus conceived of prayer as our vital connection to God, for our true needs. And Christ Himself modeled this. You know, Mark one thirty-five. In the early morning, while it was still dark, He got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Luke six twelve. Before choosing the twelve, He went off to the mountain to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. It's so a prayer all-nighter before a big decision. That Jesus certainly lived like prayer was his lifeline to God. And bottom line, if prayer was important to him, well, how important should it be to us? Who are his his disciples? We are following him. Jesus lived as the perfect man. He, He modeled for us the life God wants us to live in many respects. And his prayer life certainly is included in that list. And so, look, no matter your struggles with the theology of prayer, just know this. Jesus prayed all the time in humble reliance on God and trust in God and his prayers were not a sham. Well, at the very least, you should do the same. And the fact that prayer itself is an expression of faith and the fact that prayer should have a prominent place in the life of a true disciple means prayer is a real marker of salvation, especially private prayer. Because private prayer, I find, is just one thing that the, the false believer or the unbeliever, they're just not going to do. There's no gain. There's no benefit. Like, why would they go home and labor in private prayer? No one will see. No one will know about it, so they don't get that social credit. They don't get anything from it. The only reason a false believer would labor in private prayer is if they, they feel like it's a guilt thing or it's a merit thing, like I've got to pay my dues and pray my rosary to earn God's favor. Otherwise, there's nothing in it for them. The most just don't pray because they don't have a real, living, abiding relationship with God. They might pray in public like the Pharisees, but you know, Christ himself used their public-only prayer life as an example of their hypocrisy and, and falsehood. But the true believer will naturally come to express a, a real dependence on God in public and in private. Now, I got to throw in the reminder, continual reminder, an encouragement that the standard is not perfection. We're not talking about, you know, do you perfectly pray? Do you Who prays as much as they should? Who's pulling prayer all-nighters like Jesus all the time? But as you examine yourself, you're just asking, like, do you pray? Do you pray at all? Are you growing in prayer? Do you have a heart for prayer? Do you have any desire for prayer? Look, your, fle- your flesh doesn't want to pray my my flesh doesn't want to pray, but do you have the spirit that you do have a pull and a desire a natural desire in your new life like well, I do love God and I, I do want to pray to him and call out to him do you have any desire for prayer? do you ever commune with God just because you you need him because you love him now those who who should be truly concerned here this is more of a negative those who never pray. They never speak to God. They never ask for forgiveness. They never spontaneously thank God in their hearts. They never praise God. They never make petition. They're just not living in any sort of real dependence on God in their lives. Well, so would you say such a person should have assurance that what they call faith is real, is living, is active? I would say no. So prayer is, is such a defining mark of a true believer and it accompanies the true believer everywhere we look. It should be part of your life. But look, we know we're saved by grace. It's not like uh, we're saved by a prayer life. We have to be careful and discerning here. We're not talking about like, do you pray an hour a day? Because otherwise you can't have assurance. It's, it's a subjective thing. You're just examining yourself, looking for signs of life, signs of growth, looking for a heart for God, not perfection. The one who should be concerned is the one who has none of that at all. And uh, they need to examine themselves and their assurance and their salvation. Well, we're going to try and get through one more here. Uh, A ninth distinguishing mark of a faith that saves, a real faith, is endurance amidst suffering. Endurance amidst suffering. We know that from a divine perspective, God preserves his people in their salvation But we also know that from a human perspective, we must persevere in the faith to the end to be saved. The Bible teaches the reality of false believers as we've seen. And one of the hallmarks of a false believer is, well, a lack of endurance. Many of them will just fall away. And that's how you know for sure. Well, I guess they, they didn't have genuine faith because it's part of the very definition of true faith to endure, to persevere, to not fall away. The true believer will endure and persevere in the faith no matter what. It's of the essence, the definition of true faith. So that's why it's a mark. Someone might lose their health, their wealth, their family, their relationships. That's very tragic. That's not going to make them abandon Christ. No matter the hardship or the suffering, like, well, Christ is their ultimate hope. They're just going to cling more to Christ. It's of the essence of true faith to do so. But the false believer encountering that level of hardship, they will eventually show their true colors and just falling away. They're, they're not getting out of Christianity what they thought they would anymore. And now it's just a lot of bad stuff is happening. They're out. They fall away. But the one who suffers, especially for the kingdom, but does not fall away, but endures and perseveres, well, they may gain assurance that their salvation is true, that they are, truly clinging to Christ. Because look, all this stuff is being taken away from them, but they're still on board. They're not turning away from the Lord. Amen. That's a mark of true faith. Well, we'll skip this for now. I'll just assume you understand that in in Scripture, Christians are told to expect suffering, to expect persecution on on account of the Lord. I think you guys know that. Affliction just comes with the territory of following Christ. 1 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So for the sake of time, like, okay, it's part of discipleship to suffer. But this is why Jesus told his disciples, if they're going to follow him, well, you better deny yourself and pick up your cross. This is a path of suffering. The cross comes before the crown. But the Bible also teaches that God uses those very afflictions to test and prove his children. Now, many verses teach that God designed suffering to strengthen and verify the faith of his people, which leads to their growth and their assurance. Let's go to 1 Peter 1. See if we can include a couple of these in here. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9 should be familiar to you. I'll I'll go to James myself. Just to read that real quick. You know, while you're turning to 1 Peter, James, you should know, James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is using trials to test the faith of his people, knowing that it will produce something, it will produce the fruit of endurance, which will give them greater hope, that enables them to persevere to the end. God is building you up through trials. And James ends by highlighting this as well. He, call, he says, you know, you too be patient, James 5.8. Strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is near. Now, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. He calls on endurance as you know, the mark of those who are blessed, those who know the Lord. We get an ultimate assurance from that endurance. Now, if you're in First Peter, look at chapter 1. You know, sorry, verse 3. First Peter 1, 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And look, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God has saved us. He's caused us, caused us to be born again. He emerged faith in our hearts. Now he's protecting and preserving us. He won't let us go, but the means by which he preserves us is our own faith. He's using our faith to preserve us. That's our perseverance. And along those lines, God is very concerned that our faith grows, that it can endure. And so look at verse six. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse eight, and though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, faith, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We are saved by faith, We will endure by faith. God is working to preserve us by that faith. Faith gives us a living hope of heaven. But that's why God is very concerned to grow the faith of his people. and He will do so by trials, suffering, affliction. Never intended to consume them, but to refine them like like precious metal. to, To burn away the dross. That's his part. Puts us in the refining fire in love that what comes out on the other side is refined, purified, made stronger. And as you lose the things of this world, well, you realize all I really have is Christ. That can't be taken away. That is meant to lead to a greater joy in the Lord and dependence on the Lord. He he ordains these afflictions to force us to depend on him where we, we have no other choice but to trust in him. That's how the true believer will respond. When false believers encounter such trials, though, when they see various trials, like I said, they, more often than not, they're going to show their true colors and succumb and fall away. And this is what Christ taught in the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, 20. He said, the one on whom, you know, the parable of the soils, right? The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The false believer will, Christ himself says, this is how you know that the true from the false. He doesn't bear fruit. He falls away when the going gets tough and shows he he was not ready to deny self and follow Christ. He wanted Christ for something else, maybe some health and wealth. But when it came time to suffer for Christ, die for Christ, he's out. And Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you're willing to give up your life for me. This is a marker of a false faith. But the true believer has counted the cost of discipleship and will prove his discipleship by enduring all hardship and remaining with Christ. Just listen to finish up, listen to Romans 5, 3 and 4. Romans 5, 3 says, not only this, but we exalt In our tribulations, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings proven character. Proven character brings hope. Paul can glory in tribulation knowing that this is just icing on the cake, proving I know the Lord. I am his. It leads to an ultimate hope. We are truly saved and that our hope is in Christ anyway the discipline of enduring trials and suffering ends up proving we are God's children. The world may hate us and reject us. We may suffer the loss of health and wealth and family. But like Peter, we say to the Lord, well, like to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? There's no reason to stop following the Lord. Although more so, it's reason to follow him more. Because in the end, Everybody suffers to a degree. Everyone's going to suffer the ultimate loss of death. But we're the only ones who can do so with hope in a God who raises the dead. And the true believer with true faith, they're going to just cling to Christ no matter what. He really is their ultimate only hope. Nothing diminishes that. Suffering only enhances that. Just the complete opposite response to those of the world. So much of assurance comes over time and is proven over time. And indeed, it's just a matter of time before you suffer as a Christian. But as you meet that suffering with patience and endurance, you're bearing witness that you really are trusting in Christ alone. You're showing off a key distinguishing mark of true faith, which is perseverance. And so as you persevere, you should grow in hope and trust, and you should be assured that your faith in Christ, it looks like the real deal. The more we suffer... The more we realize that our faith in Christ, it's, it's all that's really real. It's all that really matters in the end faith in Christ, clinging to the rock. And if any of you here today are suffering, I pray you learn. The Lord wants you to cast your cares on Him and turn to Him, not away from Him, that your faith might grow through your trial. You might even be more assured in your faith through your trial. The Lord has good designs even in our suffering. Okay, well, I think that'll do it. We'll come back next time. We'll throw in that 10th mark of distinguishing faith. And then I think you'll really benefit seeing it all brought together, a little bit more big picture, what assurance is all about. And then some case studies, I think, will really help you think through your own life. Am I saved? Am I, should I have assurance of salvation? Hopefully, we'll make it real practical next time as we, I think, finish up. We'll see. But we'll, we'll see you next time. we pray. And we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we praise you for an evening, studying your word. It's always profitable as we look at some of these marks of faith and examine ourselves. Uh, I pray us here tonight are found, uh, passing the test, found approved. Even that's by your grace. We have no reason to boast, Lord. But if we are truly saved, we should be praying privately. We should be enduring hardship, trusting you, obeying you, loving you, loving others. These marks of faith should emerge in our lives. That's just an outcome of your new birth. When you save us, Lord, you say you make us new. The new birth is no small thing. This is a radical rebirth and renewal of of who we are inside out. And it should emerge. And as it does so, we can be encouraged that our faith in Christ is is real. At the same time, Lord, we need encouragement because we know we have the flesh and we fall very far short, even of the Christian life. Who here is prays perfectly or obeys perfectly, loves perfectly, we thank you that our salvation is by grace and we don't have to rely on our performance for our relationship with you. Our relationship with you is unconditional in Christ by grace. And that that just makes us want to strive more, not not to pay you back, just as we marvel at this gospel of grace. And, and it, it spurs our new hearts on to serve you more, to love you more, to pray more, and because we, we do want to live out the new birth we have received. We pray for godly conviction and at the same time, encouragement as we just seek to follow Christ. Give us greater eyes to see him and just to follow him. Set our, our, fix our eyes on him all the time. That will ultimately give us assurance. Bless us as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.